Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be speaking to thought leaders and practitioners in and around product management, hoping to use our combined experience to inspire you to be a better product manager, product leader, or just make better products. If that sounds like your sort of thing, let's stay friends. You can pop over to onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we stop arguing about tabs and spaces and go deep into the no-code revolution which is sweeping through the product and tech industries and ask ourselves if it's leaving a pile of disgruntled developers in its wake. We talk about how and why to get started using no-code, the types of problems you might solve with it, and whether there are any limits to how far you can go with it. We also consider the dangers of shiny object syndrome and how to make sure you're able to concentrate on the essential but still find a little bit of time to look at cool new stuff. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Natalie Furness, a marketing and sales consultant and HubSpot guru. Natalie's also a trained competitive dancer and -and up-and-coming Thai boxer, who's now aiming a roundhouse kick directly into the midriff of developers around the world and going big on no-code solutions both developing them herself as well as spreading the good word online and training others. More than anything, she loves to connect people with whatever they need to make their lives better and automating the heck out of everything. So I'm suspecting I'm going to be replaced by a no-code AI chatbot by the end of this interview. Hi, Natalie. How are you tonight? Hi, Jason. I think that has to be the best intro I've ever had (laughs) in my life. So thanks so much for that. (laughs) So let's get to it. You seem to have your fingers in a number of pies. So you're the founder of Nyan Marketing. You're building a new UX tool a product scoping tool. You've got a banner of minimum viable stack over the top of everything. You're very active in the marketing community on Twitter and around the web. You're working part-time with some other companies and consulting as far as I can tell as well. That's a lot of stuff. How do you fit it all in? Well, I mean, when you hear it back like that, I mean, I don't really know. (laughs) I, I think it's just, it's pretty much organized chaos in a way. When you're one of these kind of creative people, you like to be stretched in terms of like being able to imagine things and being able to implement things and be able to problem solve. And you kind of just figure out a way of meshing it all together. Although I have to say that I'm quite lucky in this fact that I can automate things. So generally, if it can be automated, it generally is. And to be honest, I don't do any of these things alone. I have an amazing team behind me. Yeah, I was going to say, because one of the possible implications of being creative and having all those different things that you want to work on is that you kind of have loads of half-finished solutions and bits with springs sticking out of them and stuff that never quite get over the line. Do you think that it's something that you're really conscious of or like is it the fact that you've got this team that helps keep you honest on those things that allows you to work on so many things at the same time? Yes, shiny object syndrome is definitely a real thing and I definitely say that I suffer from it in some ways. But I think I have allowed myself to kind of explore shiny new things, but in a way that I don't become so attached to them. I have maybe one or two objectives that I'm working on at one time. I find better when I have two things so I can flip between them, but know that those are going to be my long-term projects and focus my energy on those, but then allowing myself to kind of explore the other little shiny things along the way. And the people you have working with you on this stuff, are they kind of contractors and people that you bring in or are they full-time people? I mean, is Minimum Viable Stack a company with employees or do you bring people in as you need them? Yeah, great question. And so I'll split it kind of into two. So the Naya Marketing, which is my 
customer experience, automation, sales and marketing consultancy business, that is almost like an agency consultancy in which we have contractors and freelancers that come in and work on project base. So I manage the business, do a lot of the customer facing stuff and then have te- like teams come in and support depending on the needs of the project. Minimum Viable Stack, there's actually two of us that run that. I have a there co-founder. Yep. A co-founder that I met on Twitter of all places. Oh, brilliant. Have they got more or fewer followers than you? Because that must be a bone <laughs> of contention, right? I mean, I think we kind of started off with the same amount of followers when we met. Uh, let's just say he's been more in the back end and I've been more in the front end. So so not as many. <laughs> not not quite. It's quite. We've never actually met in real life. In fact, the end of the month, this month, I'm going to Paris for the first time to meet him. There you go. COVID willing. Well, yeah, COVID willing. Let's hope I get over there. But it's been so interesting, like during like this sort of time to to realize the amazing relationships you can build on the internet and how you can find people who share common interests with you. And I mean, basically, we collaborated on a project which was all about showcasing the minimum viable stacks required to build products. And we sort of riffed off that, ended up on a Zoom call. And within 20 minutes, we were like, right, let's start a business. There you go. That's that's the origin story. You could fit that into a TV episode. But your background before this was in marketing. And obviously, you're still very involved in the marketing, you know, marketing Twitter, marketing communities, you're still doing marketing automation. But is it fair to say that your background started out in more traditional marketing? So kind of brand marketing, event marketing, stuff like that? Or have you always been kind of sassy? Yeah, I, I suppose marketing started out when I was at university and I started my own business, a dance business actually. And I marketed my own dance company using Facebook. Back then, Facebook was new. There was no such thing as business profiles. I actually just used a personal profile, just called it Street and Dance, and then just launched a company from that. And then I didn't really know what marketing was. I was studying a science degree. It just so happened that I was marketing stuff. Yeah, then I went more into writing things like TED Talks. that kind of marketing, events marketing, then moved into marketing for health tech and then blockchain. That was kind of oh, my big no. move. Yes, I know. Back in 2000, I think it was 17, I'm, I was head of marketing for a, a blockchain company. So yeah, that was very interesting during that time. Must be a pretty tricky proposition marketing blockchain, which you know, even now you could argue whilst it's definitely more in the mainstream, it's still the preserve of certain sort of niches in a way it's not like something that my mum or dad can use right so well they can but they definitely won't so is it kind of challenging marketing such a disruptive technology whatever the pros and cons of it it's still very much a disruptive technology did you find that a challenge yeah i mean back then it was because blockchain was still a swear word then um, not like it is now it still is in some places yeah so i mean the the story we told was not related to the technology yep the blockchain company I was working for was giving people back control of their health records and allowing people to own their health records. So, you know, talking about the narrative like that rather than focusing on the underlying technology definitely got a lot of traction for the business. You know, we had meetings with, you know, Ministry of Health, went over, traveled the world talking about like the potentials of this technology. And it wasn't, yes, it was hard in many ways because of pushback, but then at the same time, people were really open to the idea of what it could do for healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess when we're thinking about product marketing in general, it's kind of one of the 101 rules, right, that you talk about the outcomes and not the way that you're getting there necessarily. I mean, yeah, you'll need to talk about that at some point, but that's not your leading message, right? 
Yeah, for sure. It all depends on who you're talking to. Yeah. Because I mean, if you're looking at people who want to, like, if we're using blockchain and cryptocurrency, if you're talking to the technologists who want to know how things work, it's important for them. Yeah. You know, you understand how consensus mechanisms work for your blockchain. But if you're talking to the end user who has no interest in the underlying technology, then you speak to them in the language that the end user wants to hear, it's something they can relate to. And I think, you know, personalizing content and communications to the person you are speaking to is just so, so important. And yeah, that's very much what I enjoy doing. That's good stuff. But it's fair to say that any good founder or indeed any good product manager needs to have a keen understanding of marketing and marketing principles because ultimately they need to get their offering to market. They need to try and find product market fit if it's early and all, all of the classic go-to-market activities. But what was it that gave you then the bug to start going and building solutions for yourself or your own ideas rather than, quote unquote, just marketing other people's? I think deep down, I've always wanted to build the product. The problem is <laughs> I couldn't code. And I right. think that's a barrier to a lot of people who are just natural builders. Like I love building businesses. I love talking positively about other people's businesses. And there was just this kind of missing piece in the middle of just being able to build it. And when I found the no-code space, again, on Twitter, rather recently, <laughs> I realized there was a wealth of people who were building products, launching them to market, marketing themselves, and generating revenue all without code. And... It was when I, I sort of found that movement that I realized, do you know what? I've always wanted to build something. Let's just give it a go. So I did, and it went remarkably well. So I just kept doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. And we'll talk a little bit more about no code in a minute. But before we do that, it'd be interesting to delve a little bit into some of the current projects that you've got going on, one of which I've seen a sneak preview of, and one of which I haven't. The first one that comes to mind is UX Framed, which is a new tool which you built yourself, no code solution. But what does that product do for me as an end user? Well, UX Framed, we designed it with one thing in mind to help people who are non-designers design on Figma fast. That's it. So if you can't design, but you want to design stuff on Figma, what do you do? Usually you spend two to four weeks trying to figure out how to use the platform, realizing that your design skills are probably not that good anyway. And you didn't realize that there were so <laughs> many ways in which you had to remember the certain amount of pixels for every different type of screen in every different border. And then you end up not with anything on Figma. So we wanted to address this problem by building a way for founders to very quickly articulate their user journeys using a series of questions and then we just translate their user journey requirements into wireframes using a Figma plugin that we've built. Now, I have to admit, as much as most of it is no code, there is some code. Ooh. I know. It's like seeing behind the Wizard of Oz's curtain. <laughs> I know. I have to be honest. So, yeah, 90% no code, 10% code. So, we, we call this in the industry low code. So, it's a low. There you go. Yes. It's, it's like low alcohol beer. Rather than no alcohol beer. Exactly, but it tastes good. <laughs> well, not some of the ones <laughs> I've tasted. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, that's that's UX framed. And we've just opened the private beta at the minute. So people can, you know, go and sign up for that if they're interested. And we're looking at doing a launch on Product Hunt reasonably soon for for the first version of it. So people will be able to log in, share the user journeys they want to build into wireframes and they should appear. So is that, I mean, just getting my own product nerd on now, like, is that really, for want of a better word, as straightforward as having like a bunch of different predefined types of journey that can kind of be mixed and matched together and you have some kind of decision tree or is it really way more complicated than that with lots of data science and other cool stuff behind it as well? So I think to start with version one, because of course, you know, we need to get our MVP out there. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Version one MVP out as fast as possible. So we, it took us two weeks literally to, to build oh, everything. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's the speed you can work in with some of these no code platforms. So yeah. now a user can sign up, a user can log in, a user can complete their requirements, which is actually supported by Typeform. We then take the backend answers from Typeform and put it into Coda, which is a no code tool. We do have some algorithms that work on that. So we know what sort of screens we should be pulling from Figma. And it's the kind of pseudo code that we create in Coda that we put into our plugin to pull the Figma screens. And then they get delivered to the user's portal that they can log in and, and see the screens. Right. So you've had some designer somewhere make some things in Figma, some assets in Figma, which you're then connecting to and producing via some APIs or whatnot, the end result. But they have to have Figma, the founder or the product manager or whoever it is, they have to have Figma at their side to then access that and do anything with it. Yeah. So, I mean, Figma is generally free yep. to sign up to. So we would provide a link to the to board in which they could duplicate the project and put that in their own Figma. Right. And then if they wanted to use it on a builder like Bubble, they can integrate that and then start building a no-code app on Bubble straight from Figma. So that's the kind of a long term is to kind of help people go straight from, I've got an idea, these are the user journeys. I want to get wireframes, get them fast, and then put them on Bubble and then have an app pretty much built. Just need to build the logic behind the back end on Bubble. Just the logic. Just the logic. <laughs> it's, in, it's interesting, though, because the people that we've spoken to who are most interested in UX framed are those that have the technical abilities, but not the design abilities. Yeah. So it kind of fits their needs like quite well. And also product agencies who, you know, that kind of initial point in which... You're trying to put proposal together for a client and, you know, they want you to scope their project out and, you know, lots of resources are spent. And actually, if we can, they can outsource that to us much cheaper than then using their internal resources and actually show wireframes to the founders to get them across the line to buy into their agency model. So those are the kind of two key use cases. But have you had any snooty comments from any UX designers so far saying that you're trying to automate them out of existence or are they all fairly supportive? <laughs> Or have you just tried to not tell them about it yet? I mean, a mixture of all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> On Indie Hackers, actually, I put up a post talking about our idea. And there was one UX designer that talked about the fact that they didn't like the idea. And I mean, that's fine. I'm not expecting everybody to like the idea. But we, again, it, it's like the whole no-code thing. We're trying to build the basics out for the designers so then they could take it away and edit it it's just and also you know as a designer when you have those people that come to you and they just cannot articulate what they want you to design <laughs> we want to help designers make sure that they've got at least some very basic wireframes in front of them when a founder's like well i want something that's kind of like this so i'd say we're supporting them rather than competing against them 
Well, we'll see what they say when they hear this. <laughs> but alongside that, you've also got Scope Done, which boldly claims to be able to generate accurate product requirements automatically. So you're not just going after UX people, you're also going after product managers and, and my gang as well. So what's the story behind Scope Done? Yeah, so actually, Scope Done predates UX Framed. We started with Scope Done because we were like, what's the first thing people need? Technical requirements. What's the next thing people need? UX wireframes. So Scope Done, the idea almost came out of, well, Niam Marketing because I had a young entrepreneur come to me who wanted us to build my digital agency to build her an app. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's build you an app. And I got some developers on board and, and a team together. But I was totally overwhelmed by how long it took just to refine her requirements into a, a scope of work that we, we could quote on. And as I went through the process, I thought, oh gosh, you know, if I just, if I knew the questions that we should have asked right at the beginning and just asked them all in one go, this would have been so much easier. So, I took learnings from that journey and put it into, again, sort of a tight form process in which people go through a different journey. And then coupled that with our internal knowledge of no-code tools, basically generate for a user a report which tells them the type of app that they will need, whether it should be a, a native mobile app or whether it should be a web app or whether they're actually building a SaaS or whatever. It then takes them through basic user stories. And we recommend to them, okay, this is a user story we would recommend in your MVP. This one, maybe it's for a later version down the line. We then look into sort of the features and the requirements and also give the founders an idea of how difficult those things will be to build. And then at the end, we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole idea is to manage their expectations early, you know, because there's amazing the amount of people that think, that just adding another way to search for something, a search variable, would just be super it's just, fast. Just another box, right? It's just another box. It's just another tick box. It's just another, you know, they could just tick here or just, do you know what now we need to, people should be able to search by color. Let's just randomly add that. Yeah, so to do that. And then it also provides a suggestion of a no-code architecture for that product. Oh, there you go. It's starting to get very meta now then as well then, because you're using no code to suggest other no code solutions as well. Oh yeah. I didn't even think about a that. Bit of a rabbit hole there. Yeah. So again, two, two main user groups, one direct to founders and two via agencies, if agencies want to outsource their, their product scoping requirements. So people who have shown interest are generally people that might have like maybe one product manager and, and then a few like almost business consultants or sales consultants who maybe don't have a massive product background, but could sit on a phone using Scope Done to kind of talk people through that. And then the, the reports go through the sort of head of product who then sort of checks them off to make sure that they're kosher and then delivers them, which makes it a lot more affordable for agencies. So is that out already? I mean, you say it predates. Yeah. So that's actually got users bringing in money? Yeah, I mean, it's out. We're in discussions. It's B2B product. So it's always kind go. of like... So a nice six-month sales cycle. We are in discussions with quite a few people, quite a few agencies that are looking to use it. We have a couple of partners as well that are going to, that are like the product. They're going to be helping us with distribution. But gosh, you know, distribution is hard, you know, and also marketing yep. your own product is much harder than marketing somebody else's product. Yeah, there's lots of commentary on 
Twitter and all over the place around like just having a good idea isn't enough if you're not actually thinking about how you're going to get it into people's hands. But, you know, some people argue against that, but it's obviously true that you do need to get it into people's hands. Otherwise, no one's ever going to see it. Yes, 100%. And and I think there's this balance between, and, and what I've realized is that when you're building and marketing, it's quite difficult to do both at the same time. <laughs> so you have to set time aside to build and time aside to market. I mean, luckily at Minimum Viable Stack, I have Dennis, who's my co-founder, and we've kind of split the responsibilities up. So hopefully he'll be more on the product dev side moving forwards and I'll be more on the marketing and sales side. But you know, we still both care equally about the product. And yeah. you know, so we both want to have a massive amount of input onto that too. Absolutely. Always in lockstep. But you're pretty passionate about no-code solutions. We've touched on it a number of times in this interview already, and it's something that you talk about quite a lot on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Now, you've mentioned kind of you got into it through Twitter and you got introduced to it through Twitter, but what was the actual point where you you were speaking to someone or you you, know, you looked at something and you said, wow, this is, this is really something. Like this is this is the point where you realize that you could actually go and build these things and do it all yourself. Mm. So I think this term no code is relatively new. And I'd say no code is almost like this community industry label that's been put on over all of these tools that don't require code to build stuff. It's it's kind of similar to this whole like blockchain label when <laughs> a lot of blockchains aren't really blockchains, but you know, that's a different discussion. Yeah, that's for the next interview. <laughs> but um yeah, I think I've been using no-code tools for many, many years. I just didn't realize there was a community or like a movement that kind of existed until I moved on to Twitter. And I literally went on Twitter. Ooh, it was November 2020. I think I was just bored. And I was looking for <laughs> n- new, interesting people to follow. This one post popped up called Launch MBA. And I mean, I've been kind of debating about doing an MBA all my life, but they're, they're really expensive. Yes, they are. <laughs> and like, I'm like, is there really return on investment on that? I'm not sure. But anyway, clicked on this and pretty much this web landing page spoke to me. It was like, are you somebody that likes to get stuff done and build stuff, but can't code and wants to launch your own business? I was like, well, yes, those things are <laughs> all me. So before I knew it, I'd signed up and landed myself in this community that's run by Kieran Bull, who's No Code Life on Twitter. It was an amazing experience. And I just became hooked. And then I learned from lots of other people. So Janelle, who launched a no-code info pack called Podcast podcast Ops, Uh, Newsletter OS. Newsletter OS was her first one. Then Podcast OS followed that um, using Notion. She launched those very successfully and made quite a lot of money from them. Then Tossle from Makepad. I mean, if you want to meet someone who's built pretty much a version of everything without code, he is the one to follow. And I think, you know, more and more when you sort of land in a community of people with shared interests, you just, you just fall down a rabbit hole. And <laughs> it's just one of those things. And I'm one of those people that doesn't really do things by half. So yeah, just got in, started building. And then before I knew it, I had my first product, which was actually called Freelance Notion which is a um, info product focusing on educating freelancers on how to find their niche, market themselves, manage customers and, and actually grow revenue business from that. And that's, that's available from freelancenotion.com. And yeah, it's available for anybody that likes using Notion. I'll check it out. But 
Do you tend to stick to one platform, one no-code platform, or are you very agnostic and just go and find whatever suits you and whatever fits the bill at the time, depending on a use case? Again, great question. I'm, I think at the beginning of my journey, like most no-coders, I wanted to kind of try everything. <laughs> and I think that's quite natural in your journey. But very quickly, I realized that if you want to build things fast, it's important to understand the strengths of each platform and choose the platform that has the strengths for your, for your app. But then you get to the point in which you become so skilled on one platform that actually your ability to spin up anything on that particular tool almost overrides the lack of functionality on that tool. So it's kind of like this journey where you start trying all you then start trying to find the best tool and then you find the tools that are the best for you and you just keep using them. Right. So you kind of naturally settle down on a few key tools that do the things and you know how to use them, of course, probably become a bit of a super user in those tools yourself. Yeah. And then that becomes effectively your own minimum viable stack, I guess. So Exactly. So my, yeah, my minimum viable stack, I think at the minute is pretty much softer HubSpot, MailerLite, Airtable, Coda. I'm just trying to think what else I use a lot of type form. And I think as well, you have to bear in mind cost. You know, once you've, yeah. <laughs> once you've bought the premium version of one platform, it's amazing how all of a sudden you just want to build everything on that platform. <laughs> but have you ever hit a point where you've had to throw your hands up in the air and say like, I just can't do this in, in this tool or in, in any O-code tool? I know you've said, obviously, there's a bit of code going on for the Figma stuff. You obviously solve that a different way, like you say, low code, but have there ever been any points where you've been trying to build something and you've just had to stop? Not yet. I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of the tools, so for example, software is a great example, have, they have code modules in themselves. So yeah. you can inject code into all sorts of things. And you've got to remember that the builders of most of these no code products are basically just frustrated developers that just didn't want to have to build a form over and over and over again. So they've modulized the things they didn't want to build. But you can see them all deep down, they're thinking, right, how can we still make this a scalable coded version, you know, platform? And, you know, the largest percentage of users of no code tools are actually developers, you know, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I haven't, as I say, I haven't hit the limit just yet. Maybe I'm not building anything complex enough, but at the same time, I think it's forcing me to learn a bit of code. Like I, I actually, yeah, I actually used a coded module in software the other day. I wanted to build a hex color picker for people that wanted to choose their brand colors on UX Framed. So I googled code for hex color picker, and lo and behold, someone has built the HTML that I can just copy and paste into a module, and it appeared. And I, I have learned, apparently, this is how developers develop stuff. They actually just copy and paste code from each other. And I just didn't know that until now. Yeah, no, that's absolutely 75% of software development is copying stuff from each other or from Stack Overflow, primarily from Stack Overflow. I think they hide this very well, though. That's because they don't talk to anyone. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. An apology to all developers listening. I used to be a developer too, so I can say that sort of thing. <laughs> But what are your ambitions for these tools then? Like you've set them up pretty quickly. I know you say you've had some discussions around at least one of them to go and take it out into a bigger market and start selling it in to businesses. So is that like your plan to 
take minimum viable stack products out into the world and that becomes your actual job and you stop consulting or are you planning to keep doing both for the foreseeable? Oh gosh, that's, that's a hard question. Yeah, call me Jeremy Paxman. <laughs> I mean, Dennis and I have discussed it openly that we want to build tools up to eventually sell them. That's kind of our strategy is we want to build tools. We want them to become revenue generating and then you know we want them to be acquired. I've been doing some research on a micro acquire which is a platform for acquisition of micro SaaS and technology and things like that. Yeah, that's kind of our plan as like a duo. I am in terms of a consultancy business. I st- I love consulting and I I love doing that in general. So I think that will always be part of my life. Very much focused around how do I solve customer experience and employee experiences problems through automation and systems that sort of sit in between employees and, and customers. That that's a big passion of mine. Yeah. So I suppose my my side hobby is building no code apps in the hope that hopefully I'll be able to sell them. Just like you know, some people paint art and some people you know have NFTs. I was going to say you can do an NFT in your apps as well. <laughs> this is this is amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean, the NFT world is is interesting. I actually have had a couple of developers approach me recently asking me to help them with the launch of one of those. So I might end up falling down that hole at some point. Uh, um, we shall see. Beware. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I fell down the blockchain hole. Um, it, <laughs> it took me three years to get out of it. And once I was out of it, I did feel much better. So I am, <laughs> I am cautious not to fall down any sort of crypto well too soon. Fingers crossed. But you said before this call that you hate too many emails. You don't understand why we use emails anymore. You hate paper forms. You hate documents. And that obviously speaks a lot to your automation tendencies and the fact that you just want to move as much of the manual work away as possible. But does that speak then to potentially some of your future ideas that you could maybe start building after you've moved these ones along a little bit? I mean, potentially. I mean, I see emails very much like checks. They still exist, but I have no (laughs) idea why we still use them. It's just I mean, yes, okay. There are, I'm sure there's some use cases for them. You know, as a marketer, I'd hate it if everyone got rid of emails. There'd be no way for us to do outreach to them. But yeah, I'm not a big fan of long forms, especially ones in the public sector and the government. They just, it's like they've not invested in UX at all. It's like, it's a nightmare. And um, I mean, for the, for people that know me, they'll know my main frustration with it. I mean, I'm, I'm dyslexic, so I struggle with all of those kind of like, form things especially when it's like white with black text it's just it's so visually disturbing so yeah i don't like any of that yeah again with emails like you know if it's a long thing why not put it in like a shared doc and share it and you can (laughs) comment and edit on bits of it because everything gets lost in emails and now we have notion and coda there's really no excuse to not have like an internal wiki rather than a you know email I, I mean i don't think i need to solve that problem i think it's already been solved it oh, just come on yeah, there's got to be a cool way you can do something to pull that all together where's your ambition <laughs> i mean i'm gonna try and not go down that shiny object pathway i think i have enough to work on at the minute well, that's fair enough now i want you to imagine a young or maybe even an old wannabe entrepreneur who's got a great idea but doesn't know how to build it doesn't know how to code so maybe a little bit like you when you started out and they want to get started in a no-code or low-code revolution. What advice would you give that person to get started? First of all, join Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, 
because there's just some seriously smart people on there. Come and say hi to me, Natalie underscore Fern, F-U-R-N. I'm very open to kind of like chatting and introducing people. My DMs are open. I'm quite happy. If there are people that are truly passionate about it, you know, come say hi. Hashtag no code, hashtag low code, 100 days of no code is another great hashtag. Launch MBA, another great organization, Makerpad, ODNC. All of these are, oh, then they, I'm just trying to think about who I've missed out. No code devs. I will have missed some community out and I'll feel awful after this. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, if I've missed anything out, I'll give you the information to share with your community. But yeah, there's there are so many communities on Twitter now. And st- start playing with stuff, you know, like sign up for some free trials of some of the apps and just see what you can do. I mean, Webflow has got its own university, Bubble's got tons of tutorials, so is software is starting to build out some amazing things, but just get on there. But what I would say is, as well as playing, make sure you're solving a problem, you know, really focus on like what problem is there that I can truly help and really understand if that's a problem that people want solving first of all do some social listening start like looking for trends and and things that people are complaining about that's always the best way to start find topics that people are moaning about and think about you know how can I solve this pain for them then if you've got an idea try and validate it to be honest, most of my validation now has been done on Twitter or on a social media platform or on a Facebook group where I've just been like, hey guys, I'm thinking about building this to solve this problem. What do you think? Would you like it? Hands up if you like it. And you know, if I, you get 20 hands up, you just build it. <laughs> Why not? And yeah, start building it and get it out, get it out fast. You know, like your first product doesn't have to be perfect. You know, build what we call dumb apps, build things that don't even really work and kind of push them out and just See what other people think, because if you start, as we say on Twitter, building in public, you're going to start getting a following because people are going to be interested because you're a new kid on the scene, you're building stuff. And we like doers, like, you know, it's about substance and the no code like community can tell the difference between people that talk about building stuff and people that actually build stuff. So build stuff, share it on online. And yeah, that's it really. Sounds like some good advice. And you've basically gone through the entire lean startup, probably a bunch of product management books there as well, all at the same time. So definitely can't argue with any of that. Now, I normally ask at this point where people would come and find you after this if they wanted to, but you've already kind of touched on that. But are are there any other places that people can reach out to you or is Twitter the best place? Yeah, for now. I mean, I do. I am on LinkedIn. In fact, maybe your community could help me get back into LinkedIn. I mean, <laughs> I, I've sort of fell out of love with it a little bit during lockdown. I mean, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Please say that you came from Jason's podcast because I'm not accepting you unless you say that. <laughs> oh, the, that's, that's like a, a promo code. <laughs> yeah, J- this is a Jason podcast request. Please, Natalie, accept me. Um, yeah, mainly because I'm sure you guys all know how it feels to just get like spam invited by all the sales team people on the planet. Oh, yes. Especially when you have like anything CMO related on your profile. So yeah, I'd be quite happy to connect with people there. I mean, I'm really interested in learning more about the way product people think and how, you know, UX framed and scoped on might help product people as well. So, you know, feel free to come and chat to me about these things. And if you've got suggestions about how I can improve my products, then 
I mean, I'm all for, for listening to feedback. Sounds fair. I'll link it into the show notes and hopefully you'll get some well-intentioned comments. Well, it's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about some of the stuff you're working on and some of the ways that you got there and some of the ways you're doing it. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Will do. Thanks, Jason. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs> <laughs>